This is a Holy Baptist Church podcast, bringing you into a community in which everyone is welcome, lives are changing, and Jesus is King. Thanks for listening with us today. We would invite you to subscribe so you can keep up to date with us. But for now, we pray you enjoy listening for what God has in store for you in this episode, and that it helps change your life for the better, in Jesus' name. Enjoy. The World's Greatest Story What will happen in the future? Do you think much about the end times? Are you awaiting a nuclear holocaust or a zombie apocalypse? I mean there are so many films, TV series, books, video games that cover this subject. Maybe you're a prepper and you have a well-stocked bunker in your garden. Or maybe you're like the majority of us who, well I don't really give it much thought. Well the Bible has a lot to say about future events that many Christians believe are pointing towards the return of Jesus and the end of the world as we know it. Recently, I had two fascinating conversations with two guys who know a lot about what the Bible has to say with regards to the end times. They've both written a book on the subject, they're both Baptist ministers, they're both based in the UK, and they're both called Simon, which is a bit confusing. And yet they have some very differing opinions on what they believe the Bible says. Having said that, what I love about both of these guys is that what they believe about the end times hugely affects the way they live out their faith in the here and now. So why don't you have a listen to these two interviews and consider what it is that you believe. Then after the interviews, I'm going to give you some tips on how to best read the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Well, Simon, hello. Hi. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, and it's great to have you uh, with us and talking about uh, sort of end times and things like that. Do you want to say a little bit about who you are, what you do, and why you're particularly um, suited to talk to us about this particular subject? Thank you. It's really good to be invited uh, to have this conversation, and uh, greetings to all those uh, Holy Baptists and others who are, who are listening in. Um so I grew up in Seven Oaks in Kent. I uh, have been attending Baptist Church since before I was born because uh, my mum was a member there. And I was at the Vine Baptist Church where I was uh, baptised when I was um, 14 years old. So I've, I've been in, in the family a long time now. And uh, I, I always knew that I was the kind of person who really liked to ask questions. You know, I was, I was one of those... Um, slightly bright kids that read lots of books and, and thought about them deeply, uh, whilst at the same time, you know, disliking things like playing rugby at school and that kind of stuff. So I was similar. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I, I had a sense from childhood, really, that I, I might be being called to Baptist ministry. Um, you know, some kids want to be farmers or firemen and I wanted to be, be a minister. Uh, so... I, I, I loved listening to sermons and, and thinking through if I was doing the sermon, what would I say on this? And, and that that kind of blossomed into a love of the Bible. And I can remember that a real switch on moment for me came when um, I think for Christmas, when I was about 14 or thereabouts, I got given the NIV study Bible. 
which I don't know if you've seen this thing. It's got kind of the biblical text at the top part, and then it's got um, little notes at the bottom. I, saying, I love that. I had Life Application Bible was my one. Okay, so yeah, yeah the Life Application is 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 about you know how do you live as a as a disciple, yeah. and it's really good. But what what hooked me was the fact that different scholars had different opinions about the Bible. And, and, you know, you get at the note at the bottom, it would say, some people think this means this, and some people think it means that. And as a kind of curious kid, I was like, well, I, I now know I want to know the answer. I want to know what I think. And it had these maps in it. And I then started to locate the stories again against the geography in which they're set. And, and then I was doing, you know, I did things like Latin at school because I went to that kind of school. And I remember learning about the Roman Empire and realising that, you know, the stories of Jesus are not only set in the geography of, of Israel and the culture and context of Israel, but they're set against this huge global empire backdrop. And so I, I basically fell in love with what I, I later came to realise is the discipline of biblical studies. And, and when I was a teenager, I was a bit obsessed with Paul. Um, I, I've, you know, I've got so many notes from that period, I've chopped them out now, but on, on Romans and trying to understand Paul's thinking. Um, anyway, I went to university, I went to Sheffield University and did a degree in biblical studies. And it was whilst I was there that I did a, a module, an optional module on Jewish apocalyptic literature. And the book of Revelation was part of that because the book of Revelation is, you know, one of a number of uh, quite a large number of texts from that period that are all broadly similar. And uh, I, I remember then thinking, gosh, I've just discovered the closest thing the Bible gets to science fiction because I'd read an awful lot of sci-fi and fantasy. And suddenly, you know, here we had this book in the Bible that I pretty much ignored. I mean, I hadn't really read the book of Revelation much up until that point, as I guess many people haven't. And I certainly don't remember hearing sermons on it. And I suddenly thought, you know, this is like, this is just like what I'm reading when I'm reading my Isaac Asimov or my Arthur C. Clarke. It's somebody who's saying, come with me in your imagination and we'll, we'll go to another world set in the distant future on another planet. And we're going to meet all these amazing, fantastic creatures. And, and, and of course, as with science fiction, um, good sci-fi isn't just about escapist literature. Actually, what it does is it changes you when you read it. Mm. And then you start thinking, actually, th this author's being really clever. They're inviting me to reflect on my real world that I live in. And what do I learn from this exercise of the imagination? And I, it sort of twigged that that's what the Book of Revelation was doing. Yeah. And I, I wanted to start digging deeper into that. So um, when I went to train for ministry, uh, following the couple of years after leaving university, I went to Bristol Baptist College and I did a postgraduate degree and I decided to focus on the book of Revelation. So I, I did a uh, Master of Letters and MLit degree. Um, my thesis was, was looking at the way 17th century Baptists used the book of Revelation to help them interpret their political context. And that they, they were all into like, we're living in the end times, yeah. um, the Pope's the Antichrist, or maybe Charles I, Charles I is the Antichrist, or, or maybe, you know, it kind of switches. They kind of keep re-identifying different people um, as their context shifts. And I thought this was really interesting, the way um, the context of somebody reading something changes the message that they hear from it. And I want to unpick that. And it was a bit about getting into Baptist history as well, which I, I also really like those stories. Yeah. Um, so I did that. And then I, I was the minister of church in South Bristol. And I was invited uh, by the, the, the church there to preach through the book of Revelation. So I thought, well, I'm going to take some of this stuff I've been learning. and I'm going to turn it into sermons. Yeah. And it was really interesting. It was quite a conservative church, conservative, charismatic, evangelical church. We had quite a lot of end times type people in the church. Yeah, we'll come to those in a bit. Yeah. Picking off the prophecies as they go through. 
and uh, great, great godly people. Um, and, but I was a little bit nervous because I, I wasn't going to take that approach. So I, I took a more um, let's let's read it in its original context. You know, there's no there's no real difference between the Book of Romans, or which is clearly written to the, the Roman Church, um, and the Book of and, and the Book of Revelation, which is written to the churches of Asia Minor. Uh, let's read it in its original context and then see how it speaks to us. And that's going against those whose uh, matrix of reading it was, well, it's written for me now. And and what I found was, you know, a small number of people in the church responded with, well, we think you're wrong, but we love you anyway. And then everybody else was like, thank you for giving me a way into this book. I'd never read it that way before. Indeed, I'd never read it before. And, and I, I sort of made, found a bit of a niche for myself in terms of making the book of Revelation accessible to people who'd otherwise been put off by the end times approach. Yeah. Um, so I, I ended up writing a book on it. So I, had, I wrote a big book in, uh, published in 2008, so ages ago now. Um, and uh, I found writing that really helpful. I took a five-month sabbatical to write that, and I took a really deep dive into the book of Revelation then. Um, and then I've just published various papers and things on it since then. So it's kind of been my my recurring friend, really, in terms of my faith and my, uh, my my explorations of what God is saying. And I think it has a really profound message for Christians today, but perhaps not the message that people often think it has. Yeah. So so let's just pick up on a few things, though. So yeah. so you you were uh, you've got a love your friend of the book of Revelation. Revelation is the revelations to, to John. Uh, when he was on, uh, I think, Exile on the Island of Patmos, and he's yeah. given a vision um, where he meets, sees Jesus. Uh, and we'll delve into that a little bit more later, but it was very much part of, you called it apocalyptic literature. Yeah. I guess people watching may have heard of the apocalypse. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Sort of the end times stuff's going to happen. We often picture uh, nuclear holocaust and stuff like that, but that's obviously not what was in mind when, when John... No. Oh, shall we shall we unpick the word apocalypse and apocalyptic? I think that would be a really good idea. Yes. Yeah. Great. Um, so the word apocalypse is um, the sort of English transliteration of the Greek word word apocalypsis. So it's basically just kind of you know banged into English um, and, and pronounced roughly the same. And the Greek word apocalypsis uh, means to unveil or to reveal. So, uh, I mean, an example would be, you know, a, a bride on her wedding day with the veil over her face. She lifts the veil off her face. She is simply apocalypsing her face. You know, it, it just means like really bad. Look, what's that? That sounds really bad. Well, we a very negative connotation. Know, but but, but it, it, it just means to reveal, to, mm. to make visible something that has previously been hidden or shrouded or veiled. Mm. That That's the meaning of the word. Yeah. And it, it is the first word of the book that we now call the book of Revelation or the Apocalypse of John. And um, it isn't actually the Apocalypse of John. It, 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 it's the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ yeah. revealed to John. Yes. So the, the book is setting itself up as uh, this is a book which is going to reveal or unveil something about Jesus Christ, uh, which you may not have previously known or understood. So it, it, and, and the, we call it the, Revela- the book of Revelation, singular i always get a little bit like stop saying the book of revelations it is the book of revelation because it, it is only really revealing one thing it is revealing jesus it, it is unveiling jesus it's helping us see jesus in a new way that's what the book's for okay so, the word uh, apocalyptic yeah. slides in christian history 
from there to where we are now. So if I talk about a post-apocalyptic movie, we all know I'm talking about something like Terminator. Yes. Um, where there's been some massive destruction of the earth and a handful of people have survived and making a new life for themselves and so on. Um, and of course, in the book of Revelation, you get images of global destruction. Um, there's some really kind of juicy images of, of things being destroyed, plants and people and animals and sea and the sky and all that. And what's happened is um, as people have um, pondered what the end of the world might look like, they've borrowed this word apocalypse from the book of Revelation and have, have narrowed its use down. So it's no longer about revealing Jesus. It's now become a word that in common usage is describing a violent end of the world. And you can see how it got there, but where it's got to is a very long way from its biblical origin. Mm. So I guess my first exposure, probably as a teenager, uh, would have been being shown in my youth group. I was like you, brought up in a Baptist church, uh, being shown in my youth group, the Left Behind series, yeah. uh, which was a series of books which became hugely popular uh, in the States, became TV series and, and films. And, and it picks up on that imagery from Revelation and really dramatizes it, doesn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. And I guess most people in our church will fall into either one of two camps. Either they're very much into that kind of left behind stuff where they're making political decisions and stuff around Jerusalem and stuff like that based on the interpretation of, of the Reve of Revelation. Or probably the vast majority of Christians are fairly ignorant of it. And really, the Christian faith is just you're a good person, you follow Jesus, and you go to heaven in, when you die in heaven, some sort of floaty place in the clouds. Um, where, it sounds like you don't fall into either of those two camps. Do you want to talk a little bit about what what is revealed? You say it's, it's make, seems to be focused mainly on Jesus. Yeah, so I think Jesus is, uh, is is one of the main characters within the text in the book of Revelation. Um, but he, he kind of wears a number of different costumes at different points. I think what, one, of the, one of the interesting things about Revelation is it can be quite confusing because there's a large number of literary characters in there. If you were to try and put it on as a play, you, you'd find you'd having to do a lot of costume changes. Yeah. But I actually think there's a limited number of underlying actors. So Jesus plays quite a lot of the parts. Um, the church, the body of Christ, plays quite a lot of the parts. The forces of evil in the world play quite a lot of the parts. And they just keep doing costume changes in every chapter. So it, it, it appears more complicated than it is. Um, I think the fundamental message of the book of Revelation is really quite straightforward. It is um, Jesus is Lord and therefore the emperor is not. And which means that for all of its amazing propaganda and power on the earth, the forces of the empire, the Roman Empire in the first century, are not as wonderful, powerful, godly and, 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 and amazing as they like to appear. And that actually the alternative is Jesus and the kingdom of heaven, which is uh, where the people who read the book of Revelation are invited to live. So it's inviting its readers to kind of transfer their citizenship from you know spiritually in other words they're, they're where they where they spiritually belong their spiritual place of belonging from the empire of the earth to the kingdom of heaven and then to start living their lives according to the values of the kingdom of heaven which will put them in opposition 
to the values of the kingdom of the earth, which is the empire. And I think that's a very relevant message to first century Christians for whom it was first written. But I think it's an equally relevant message for us in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are kingdoms and empires in our world, which are not the Roman Empire. They're the modern incarnations of that same spirit of empire. And they demand our allegiance and they demand that we play by their rules and they demand that we worship them. And the same call is there. Actually, don't don't live according to those rules. Don't be a citizen of the kingdom of the earth. Be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven mm-hmm. and live differently. But that will put you in opposition. You will get persecution you will get people trying to kill you i mean thankfully in this country that's rarely true um i mean as, as we as we write this of course there was that as, as we speak today there was that terrible shooting um at, at a church just up the road from me here in london on the, you know at the weekend so but it, we don't have persecution as such in our country but there are many places that do and actually places where people live under persecution are often the places where the book of revelation is most read because it speaks to them about what it is to be faithful in the face of an empire that wants to kill you. Mm. So I I think it's got a a ton of messages for us, both in our country and context, but also as as we take a look at global situations of persecution. Mm. Because I guess um, we can look back at the Bible, and this is is a historical document, and and the the New Testament and the the Gospels, the letters is set within a context which is 2,000 years ago, yet they were in the midst of that, and they were, you know, the Roman Empire was was undefeatable wasn't it it was it it was most of the known world it's would have affected everything that they did um and we can look back and go well there aren't any romans now apart from the people who live in rome but obviously it was very different context yeah let me give you let me give you an example that that i i really love to come back to and i i'm I'm grateful to the 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 great scholar richard borkham for putting me onto this Mm. um there's a couple of characters late in the book of revelation one of them is is the beast uh, and one of them is uh, the great prostitute, uh, which is a, a, a problematic image from a feminist perspective. And I, I need to acknowledge that. Um, but staying within the world of the book of Revelation, um, the beast is a symbol for the empire's army stamping with power on the earth, asserting its right on the earth through the through the, the dominance uh, of its military might. And, and the Roman Empire was predicated on the violence of its armies. And then the prostitute, the great whore of Babylon, as she's sometimes called, uh, is an image of the Roman Empire's economic systems. Uh, And John chooses a prostitute because um, the the, the act of prostitution is is an exchange of finance in return for for pleasure. And John is saying that the the goddess Roma, that the the Roman Empire personified itself as a goddess and... uh, John is saying, actually, she she's not this great, beautiful, noble, virginal goddess. Uh, she's a prostitute. And the economic systems that hold up the Roman Empire are not good economic systems. They're corrupting. Mm. And so he then pictures the prostitute riding the beast. Mm. And so you've got an image of corrupt and corrupting economics in league with violent military might, in order to stop the people of the earth being who they are called to be before God and to dominate the earth. And that's a very good political and economic critique of the Roman Empire. And John then says, come out of her, my people, so you don't take part in her sins. Live differently. Don't be citizens of an empire that's built on corrupt economics and violent militarism. Mm. And then I like to say, well, so I live in my world 
Are there places in my world where I see violent militarism in league with corrupt economics trying to sell me propaganda that will make me think that's the best way to be human? And of course there are. And then I hear John saying to me, come out of her, my people, so that you don't take part in her sins. Mm. Now, I don't think John was writing about the 21st century systems of global capital. I think he was writing about the Roman Empire. But just as with any of our other New Testament texts, once you understand how they speak in their original context, you can hear them speaking in other contexts too. And that's how I apply these te the text of Revelation to kind of 21st century living. Okay, so it's about taking those principles and contextualising them for, for now. Yeah. Um, so you're very much talking about it was a, a book that spoke into the present time 2000 years ago and there and it's a book that talks into our present time now yeah is there any aspect therefore of there being this pointing towards an end time a future um time which which will you know we talked about apocalypse apocalypse in the in the more modern yeah definition is there any sense of that I think the way to understand, uh, I, I will come to an answer to it, but I think I want to come to the answer through a wider understanding of how biblical prophecy works. Mm -hmm. So within both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, um, we get um, prophets who proclaim God's word. And a, a prophet is not usually a prediction machine. Uh, actually, you know, the Hebrew Bible is pretty negative about people who predict the future. They're, they're called, it's called divination and it's condemned. Um, so predicting the future is not really what prophecy is about. But what prophecy does sometimes do is it says, if you continue down the path that you're going down, you know, if you continue in opposition to God, you are going to unleash the forces of hell in your community and in your world. And bad things are going to happen. So we see this with, you know, the prophets before the exile um, predicting the exile. But it's not like they're providing a checklist of what God's about to do. They're going like, if you continue in opposition to God, you're going to end up in a bad place. Yeah. And I, so I think prophecy does have an eye to the future, but not in a predictive way. Yeah. Um, another way of thinking about it is uh, I'm part of uh, Citizens UK, the Community Organising Network. And at the heart of that, they, ha they have a little saying, which is the world as it is, is not the way the world as it should be. And we all, we all know that the world should be more just. It should be a, a better, more equal place. But it isn't. So having the vision of the way the world should be helps us to take action in the present to make that world real in the present. Mm. So looking to the future actually is about making that future real in the present. So when I get to the book of Revelation, I see it as prophecy in the biblical tradition, proclaiming the word of God to its generation, containing warnings. If you do this, then this kind of stuff's going to happen. And I think that a lot of the that the violent stuff in the middle sits in that category those pictures of destruction are like you know if humans continue in opposition to god creation faces uh puni not punishment but creation will will experience negativity because of human violence and i think that speaks really powerfully for example to climate change and and the, cli the current climate catastrophe if humans are in opposition to the way they're supposed to live before god on this planet then the planet is is destroyed and punished by our actions. And I think John knows that stuff. He can see how that stuff works. So I think there's a bit of future looking there. And I think he also does a bit of constructing an idealised future and inviting people to make that real in their present, just as Jesus does. You know, the, the, the Lord's Prayer, uh, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. You know, we, we know what the heavenly kingdom should be and we pray and live and act for it to become real in our midst now.
Mm. So that is where I think revelation engages with the future. What I don't think it does is I don't think it is providing a kind of a dummy's guide to the end of the world, a checklist of things that we can tick off as we see them happening so that we know that we're the last generation and Jesus is going to come back and the world's going to be transformed in the next five years. I think that's a misuse of the text and potentially quite a dangerous misuse because a lot of the, uh, particularly in the United States, a lot, a lot of the people who really believe that Jesus is about to come back in their lifetime um, disengage from things like climate change. Mm. And if you get behind why so much American politics uh, that's driven by the, uh, you know, the Southern Baptists and so on, why they're against taking action on climate change, it's because they don't think they need to bother because Jesus will come back and sort it out. And that's a really dangerous place, I think, to end up for the whole of humanity. Yeah. And, I, and like you pointed out earlier on, um, when you were looking at, was it 17th century Baptists, they looked at their present context and saw an antichrist. They saw all these signs that they read in, in, in the Revelation book of Revelation and applied it to their context. And we've been doing that throughout history. Yeah. And it, and it just varies depending on what context we happen to be in. Yeah, and, and, and they were wrong. I mean, yeah. at one level, they were right. They were right in using the text to identify where evil was in their world. Yes. They were right in hearing the call of revelation to resist that evil and live by Christ's values, not by the values that society is putting on you. That was all bang on. Hmm. Where they were wrong was going, and we're the last generation. And we know they were wrong because we're here. Yes. And I, I just think we, you know, we need to be a bit cautious about thinking we're the special last generation because the chances are we aren't. No, no. <laughs> so I'm just uh, trying to grapple then, and I'd love to get your view on where does the second coming of Jesus come in? This idea that Jesus is going to return in power and authority. Where does that fit into your thinking and your interpretation? Yeah. So I. I have what, what is uh, described by scholars as a realized view of eschatology. So eschatology is the, the doctrine of the end times. Um, yeah. The approach that I take, and it's not just me, I mean, a lot of people take this approach, is to say that actually the, the end times become real in the present. So um, I uh, interpret though that language of the, the second coming of Christ as being about Christ coming to the world through the church. Yeah. Uh, and that you know, when when we are faithful, Christ comes again and again and again to the world. I I I don't end up in a place where I'm thinking, you know, somewhere in the year um, thirty thousand two hundred and twenty-three, Jesus will come back on a cloud. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I I think that's that's poetic. It's image. It, it's functioning at the level of of kind of parable. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't convey truth, but I think the truth it conveys is that that. Christ coming in person at the incarnation and then dying on the cross and being raised on the third day and ascending into heaven and then coming back to the earth through his spirit, through by his spirit, through the church. I think that I, I interpret that language around second coming as being Christ coming to the earth again and again and again through us as we are faithful in our witness to the world. OK, so um where there's so revelation talks about new heaven and new earth and yes. this is why obviously americans don't want some americans don't worry about climate change because think well everything's going to be remade anyway um where does that fit into your your thinking yeah. so um if i th th there are world-changing events that can take place in someone's life that change everything for them i mean it might be it might be something lovely like the birth of a child mm. uh, and you know the old has gone and the new has come 
before I, I before that happened, I wasn't a parent. Now I am. Um, it might be winning the lottery. Uh, it might be a, a bereavement. You know, the old world has gone. The new world has come. We, we know that that language describes our experience of our lives. There are those moments in our lives when the world changes and a new world comes into being. And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. But we, we can resonate with that, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, within the literary structure of the book of Revelation, if you read it through, um, the first few chapters are set on the earth. It starts off, as, as you rightly said, with John and Patmos and prisoned for his testimony to the word of God. Um, and he's, he writes to the churches. Of, um, so the first few chapters are these letters written to churches. And I visited all of those churches. I, I went out a few years ago and drove around them all. Um, and so it's very earthly. It's very much, you know, almost like Paul's letters, providing pastoral advice to their context. And then there's this weird thing that happens in chapter four end of chapter four you've got a, a door opens in heaven and john ascends into heaven and uh, if you've read your other jewish apocalyptic literature i've got one of the big books up behind the bookshelf has got a ton of these that's not an uncommon literary device in, yeah. in jewish apocalyptic literature so uh, other texts do roughly the same thing so he goes up into heaven and then from there really through to kind of chapter 21 right near the end what we've got is heaven's perspective on the earth. It's like John's flying above the Roman Empire and above the church and looking down on it. And he's seeing what's going on on the earth from heaven's perspective. So this is where we get all the stuff about, you know, the empire is not all the empire appears to be. When it's seen from heaven's perspective, it's corrupt. So we get all of that stuff as he goes through. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, um, he, the, the New Jerusalem, which is one of Revelation's images for the church, uh, do you remember I said that they keep putting on different costumes? Yeah, so the, yeah. the, the church is a number of different characters through the text. It's the two witnesses. It's the woman clothed with the sun. You know, it, it pops up a number of times. And it, it, it is also there in the book in the New Jerusalem, which is described as the bride of Christ. And we know that the bride of Christ is the church. So the New Jerusalem, which is the bride of Christ, which is the church, descends down to the earth. At, at which point, as, as readers, it's kind of reversing the ascent we made at the beginning and we're coming back down to earth at the end. Yeah. And then when we get back to earth, this is rhetorically and returning us back to the world that we live in. What we find is that everything is different. We, we are already living in a new heaven and a new earth. Hmm. The old has gone and the new has come and it is gone because we have now seen the earth as heaven sees it. And we can never see it differently again. So I actually interpret that language around new heaven and new earth as referring to what the book of Revelation does to us as we read it. We are no longer in the same place we were when we started. The old is gone and the new has come. We can no longer be servants of the empire if we've read this book right. We have to be servants of Jesus. Now, there is an element of future in this. As yeah. I said before, this idea of the world as it is is not the world as it should be. There's an element of idealised future. You know, wouldn't it be amazing to have a place where there's no more crying and no more tears and no more violence and, and no more injustice? And, and Revelation creates that vision of an idealised future towards the end. Mm. But I don't think it does it to say, sit tight, keep yourself morally pure and wait for Jesus to bring that into being. I think it does it because it says, look, if you've caught the vision for the way the world can be, you need to start making that real in your world now. The new heaven and the new earth need to start breaking into your life and your community and your church. Mm. So again, I, I think that the visions of the future break into the present. So I, I have this realized eschatology. The, the, the end times are realized in the present. As we pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come on earth 
as it is in heaven. That that for me is what it's all about. So I'm just trying to kind of work out uh, what you're saying there. So we are um, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're representatives. Uh, we're, we're Christ in terms of uh, the, the church, his body. And therefore, we're called to live out uh, as kingdom, as, as citizens of God's kingdom in a world which is very much uh, of a different kingdom. And we we bring about um, justice and love um, and all those sort of things uh, in, in our world through the way that we, we share Jesus and, and live out our life. Is that yeah, absolutely. We, we are the outposts of the kingdom of heaven on earth. We are the representatives of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Yeah. We are those who can see what God wants to be with humans, and we're living it into being. We have a phrase we use sometimes at my church, uh, living as if it were true until it is true. Mm. You know, we refuse, we refuse to accept that this can never come into being, and we're going we're to keep living it against all the evidence to the contrary, that there is a better way of being human before God than the way the world keeps trying to sell us and tell us we ought to follow. Mm, mm. Um, just a question around spiritual warfare. So within Revelation, there's obviously quite vivid pictures of good versus evil, um, uh, Satan uh, and his minions, uh, and also angelic figures and, and from heaven and stuff like that. Where do, where does that fit into your... your con How do you interpret spiritual warfare? Is it something that exists or, or not in your... In your uh, I would say absolutely yes, but then I want to qualify what I mean by that. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean I, I have I have a very real uh, belief that, that there are forces of evil at work in the world, and that they they are uh, whispering in the ears of humans lies that take us away from God and lead us towards works of evil. Mm. So, uh, at one level. I, I believe that stuff's very true. I mean, you, know, you can you can see the works of evil people do in the world, and that yeah. that um, I think in terms of the images that the Book of Revelation uses, the kind of the angels and demons stuff, um, he's drawing on the long tradition of Jewish angelology and demonology. So if you read back into your Hebrew Bible, you look at things like the Book of Daniel and the Book of Ezekiel, you know, uh, Jeremiah, uh, the source texts that John is borrowing from. You know, he's he's taking images from his scriptures and echoing those in in his text. Um, that stuff has an ancient history, um, and it kind of comes from the belief that God is like a kind of godly version of an earthly king. Um, so, you know, you look to the book of Ezekiel and you get you know, God on his throne chariot with its wheels within wheels. Um, this is basically God as an ancient Near Eastern monarch being wheeled out on his throne chariot to the top of the hill to oversee the battle that's going on below. And that uh, and of course, you know, an, an ancient king would have had all his minions around him who would serve him and attend to him. So when when the ancient Jews were looking for language to describe what they were trying to express about God at that point, they kind of imagined that God must be a bit like their kings mm. and must have all these minions attending him. Um, I'm not sure I think that's literally a description of who God is. I think any attempts to describe who God is are, are always partial and are always flawed and are always inadequate because God is beyond human describing. And I think we, we fall into an error when we try and impose our language on God as if that has perfectly described who God is. I think we have to take all of these attempts to describe God in his heavenly realm as at best 
pictures that speak to us uh, something about the nature of God rather than being a literal description. So I think that the language of um, demons um, who oppress humans, at one level, I do not believe that I've got, you know, demons flying around this room trying to prod me with pitchforks and get me to do bad things. But I do have um, friends who struggle with alcohol addiction who will speak very movingly about the way in which the demon of drink blights and oppresses their lives and how they long for liberation from that. So, I, I, again, I, I take the language slightly metaphorically yeah. at one level, but also very seriously at another level. I, pe people are oppressed by demons. People are uh, you know, that they, there's evil in the world and, and the, the grace uh, of God made known through the spirit of Christ through the church casts out that evil. Um, and, you know, I, I, I do pray for people to be healed of their afflictions. Um, and, and I believe and have seen Jesus working in people's lives to release them from these demons that bind them. So I, I take it seriously at one level, but I don't take it too literally. Yes. Thank you. Um, I think we're coming towards the end of our our time. You've been really helpful, and I think I've got a real sense of uh, of where you're coming from. Um, if you could sum up kind of your your interpretation of Revelation and the end time, just succinctly into one sentence, one paragraph. Yeah. If that's not too difficult, and obviously you've already explained a huge amount already, how how would you sum that up? I think. Probably for me, at the core of it is the call to worship Christ and Christ alone. Mm. Jesus is Lord. And therefore, all other claims on our lives are at best secondary. Mm. And if they become primary, that is idolatry. And all hell breaks loose. Yeah. So that's the kind of core message of Revelation. That's what I think it's trying to say. Yeah. In terms of the end times, I, I think... We are always living at one level in end times. Um, you know, my life, I'm 50 now. What have I got? At best, another 50. I, I'm, in this, I'm in the end times of my life, as, as we all are at one level or another. And, and the call on us, therefore, is to not delay, to take seriously what it is, to live according to the light of Christ now, as if the future didn't exist. Mm. But I... But also, you know, I wouldn't assume the world is not going to exist beyond us. Um, I'll finish with a little story. There's a wonderful story, which is probably apocryphal, um, about Francis of Assisi. So it probably didn't happen, but it's a great story anyway. Mm. The story is that he was out hoeing his garden and somebody came to him and said, great saint, what, what final work of, of amazing goodness would you do if you knew that tonight you were going to die and this was your last day on earth? And he replied, I finish hoeing the garden. And I think there's something really profound in that, that the task before us today, whether it's recording a YouTube thing or doing some emails, it, do today as if it was your last day and do it before God and do it rightly and in service of Christ. And then the future will take care of itself. Hmm. That's, that's excellent. Thank you so much. Um, if people wanted to find out more about you, maybe visit your church website. Where can they find you? Yeah, uh, really happy to hear from people. Um, so our website is uh, bloomsbury.org.uk because we are Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church. Uh, there's a contact uh, form on there if anybody wants to drop me an email and if anybody wants to come along and worship with us. 
we have fairly traditional worship with a pipe organ, 11 o'clock every Sunday, uh, and mostly but not always me preaching. Um, really happy if anybody's passing through London and wants to drop in. Uh, we're in the West End of London on Shaftesbury Avenue, and uh, we're, we're trying to do our bit of being a faithful witness to the kingdom of God in the middle of our city. That's been, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Hi, Simon. Martin. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right, thank you. Good, it's kind good. of you to, to welcome me to your little chat this morning on the end times sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, I, well, I know, because we, we've known each other in the past before, because uh, your mum and dad went to a church that I was minister at. Yeah, and yeah. I knew that you were into the end times because I knew that you'd written a book yeah. about it. So it was a, a subject that was close to your heart. Indeed, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So do you want to say a little bit about who you are, what you do and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, well, I'm Simon, Simon Downing, and I've been in ministry we're coming up about 26, 27 years. So it's quite a while now. And during that time, you know, there's a number of subjects you come across, a number of things you do and and I don't know, always the return of Jesus Christ was a central thing in my mind. It meant, it meant so much to me. I don't know why some people get into grace. Some people are very much into, oh, I don't know, other things like male leadership only kind of stuff. And that becomes their bugbear, I suppose, if you like, for their life. But for me, the return of Jesus, what's going on in the world, does that all fit together with the scriptures that we see? That sort of stuff has always been of importance to me. And I did eventually write a book that was... I was just saying to you before, 2011. So, um, you know, coming up for 12 years ago, doesn't seem possible. If if I was to write one now, I don't think I've got what in me what I'd need. But I had it back then, and I I wrote this thing, and um, you know, it's quite involved in a sense, but it's it's readable. But it looks at the various teachings in the scriptures and then tries to apply that to what's going on in the world. And even though there's 12 years have passed. I still think it's got something to say to the subject and anybody who's interested in it, you know. So what we're talking about uh, in this this interview is sort of the the, the end times, um, yeah, the yeah. apocalypse, Revelation, yeah. which is the the last book uh, in, in our in our Bible. Um, yeah. Do you want to explain a little bit about what it is, just in 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 big terms, yeah. but also particularly why why we should be should we be bothered about this? Why is this? Should we be important? Obviously, it's important to you, but yeah. why should it be important to us? Well, it's obviously a big question. And I say at the beginning, I think a lot of people get very confused with the end times because, quite frankly, there are so many theories out there about this, that, and the other. It, it all gets merged together, and people start scratching their head and losing their hair like I do over the whole subject and thinking to themselves, you know, how does this mean anything to me? I think the truth is, if we bring it back down to its basics, in the New Testament, 300 times at least, the return of Jesus Christ was prophesied or mentioned by the various writers. So universally, across the board, this return of Jesus was to come. It comes under three terms, really. Perusia, Epiphania, and Apocalypsis. And obviously most people recognise the Apocalypsis one because that's the Apocalypse yeah. which is what the book of Revelation is technically called in Greek. It's the revelation, the unveiling, the uncovering of Jesus's return and who he is when he, when he comes. Epiphania and Perusia, they're all to do with appearance and manifestation. It's like the king returning to the world. So if that's mentioned 300 times in the New Testament, and there are certain things that go on during that period before he comes back, that's got to be 
a major thing for us to be interested in. No other thing is mentioned that many times prophetically as much as Jesus coming back. So the day of the Lord is what I'm I'm waiting for. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. It's the biggest thing for me. Uh, it's so important to me. There's many times I've shed a tear when I've said it. You know, he's coming on the clouds of heaven and every eye will see him from the pulpit. It means so much. And I'm very sure there are lots of churches that don't even hear about his coming at all. And I just think that's that's not good. That's not good based on those statistics. Mm. So when you look at those things, when you look at some of the details, I think are clearly taught in the Bible about his coming. When we look at the state of the world now, I think those scriptures are highly relevant. And I think the church particularly must be ready and prepared for what is going on now and what will come in future times. And I think we are seeing bit by bit those things gradually come into almost like a dress rehearsal for the final things before Jesus actually comes back. So I think it's, it, it's highly relevant. I think if someone just reads the scriptures as they are in some respects without getting all sort of complicated in their mind, just read them as they are, they will see in there a picture of various struggles and difficulties in the world that are going to take place. And we need to be a light to people. Uh, and I mean, I don't even want to stop there, but what I could say is I think if people want to get in their hearts the return of Jesus as the big thing, to know the world is getting worse and to know that hope only comes in Christ, then I bet you if they went, not I'm a betting man, I suppose to say that, but I, I bet you that if you were to ask the average person on the street corner, do you think the world's getting worse? They'll go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll say, and you could say to them, do you know something? The Bible says about that. And I think it's a brilliant point of communication and a brilliant point of witness and evangelism. Because once you start to say that, and once you say, I don't know what you think about Jesus, my friend, but he said he's going to come back and transform all this into something brand new. I think it's a brilliant thing to talk about. So to me, far be it for it to be an irrelevance, it's the most relevant thing of all, really. Because mm, mm. I guess when you read the New Testament, you get a sense of expectancy that yeah. Jesus is coming back soon uh, to the yeah. point where Paul has to say to them, look, you do have to still carry on working. You can't just stop everything and yeah. like, put yeah. down tools. Um, but that was 2000 years ago. Yeah. How, you know, how, how do we, how we take, how do we take that into account that we had this idea of Jesus coming soon and yet yeah. we're still, still here. Yeah. Waiting. It's, it's an extremely difficult question to answer. I do think there are a number of passages in Matthew and other places like that where Jesus coming back soon is not quite the emphasis. There are other passages that speak of a delay, you know, and being delayed for quite some time. So it depends which passage you're looking at. And also, let's not forget, the early Christians wanted him to come back, which is what I'm saying. We, we want him. We've got to have him come back. So th there's this desire for him to come back. Yeah, I think there's a mixed kind of, you know, emphasis in the scriptures as well. Yeah. So, yes, 2,000 years. Well, let me mention this. In, in Matthew 24, which is one of the big passages to do with the end times, um, it's notable that in verse 3 of that passage, and I'll just, I'll just say, when will this happen, the disciples said to Jesus, as in the destruction of the temple, 
and the signs of your coming and the end of the age. That's what the question they asked him. And I think there's two things going on in that particular passage, that particular verse. On the one hand, they're talking about when will this happen, the destruction of the temple, which did happen in AD 70, you know, a few years later after the time in which they were, they were writing and talking. So the destruction of the temple did happen. But the interesting thing is that the disciples had associated destruction of the temple precisely with Jesus coming back and the signs of the end of the age. So it was all lumped together as one thing. And I think Jesus is saying, well, yeah, destruction of the temple is happening. It's going to happen. And it did, as I said, AD 70. But obviously, here's the thing. Where's Jesus? If destruction of the temple has happened, and according to that question, you think, well, he'd be back. Yeah. But here's the issue. He hasn't come back because the signs in that passage have not yet been fulfilled for him to come back. And I think that's a really important thing. To say that this is all, all fulfilled, like a realised eschatology, where it's fulfilled only in the New Testament period, I think is a misreading of the Scriptures. Mm. So for me, it's a kind of inaugurated, where we've got... That we've got the now, but not yet emphasis. And I think there's a lot of that in the Bible, and I could go on about that if necessary. But truthfully, when I look at the passage in Matthew 24, I say, yeah, it's absolutely relevant for the first century when it was written. But there's also this question in there. And Jesus is saying, yes, the destruction is going to happen, but it is, there's also the signs of my coming. What are they? And I think that somehow these things are all related together. It's almost as though the first century uh, have is a dress rehearsal to use that phrase of what is actually going to happen at the end so we're seeing something in advance there for what will be in the future and so to answer your question there i think there's some really important things within that passage that christians really need to take note of like false christs false messiahs false prophets all sorts of things going on in the world before his return and so forth so you know so if if these things have been fulfilled Where's Jesus? He's not here. So we're either really stuck forever yeah. or what he prophesied then was about two time periods yeah. and he hasn't come back yet because they have not actually literally been fulfilled in the way he intended back in the first century. So, yeah. And, and I guess that follows the pattern of much of the Old Testament prophecies where it has a relevance yeah. to what it was written but yeah. also points towards a future, which is why we refer to Old Testament prophecies so much. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And that is a really good question, Martin, because I've actually made a mental note and scribbled it down as well, but because I can't read my writing, it's yeah. almost, almost a pointless exercise. But if if one was to say, look at Isaiah 7, verse 14, you know, that the virgin will be with child and so on and so forth. Okay, now, that passage of Isaiah 7, 14, the word in there for virgin can mean a young, marriable woman. It can mean virgin, literally. But you see, interesting, Isaiah had lost his first wife. She died. Maybe this was his second wife, his second virgin wife that he's going to be. Maybe it's talking about that lady. Clearly, Ahaz, King Ahaz and Isaiah knew who this young lady was at that time. And if you look at the context around it, it's you can't tell me that those people at that time were thinking, oh, this is about the future Messiah. They were thinking about what they were thinking at the time. Yeah. You could all, but but we, as New Testament people, we look at that and go, this is who it is. Obvious. It's like there it is in history, but in future times, we find it fulfilled in an even bigger way than we could have ever expected. And that's that's the great thing about it. Similarly, 
Isaiah 40, make, uh, make straight paths for the Lord and all that, a highway for our God. Well, that happened in Isaiah 40, and it was for the people coming out of Babylon, you know, the Jewish remnant coming out of Babylon back to their land. But, of course, we know in Matthew 3, that's also about Jesus as well. So what I'm saying is with this is why the Bible is God-breathed and inspired, because there's something about some verses that are so profound. It's like it's saying something then. It's also saying something now. Yeah. And so, therefore, why is it people don't apply that logic? Mm. If they're an evangelical, they will always say it was true then and it came true in Jesus. But why is it we don't apply that logic to end time scriptures, which is what I'm doing? Because I'm saying, yes, Matthew 24 is real then. But what does it mean for later on? Is it fulfilled again in a different kind of way? So, yes, I believe it is. And I believe the book of Revelation similarly has relevance for the first century in which it was written. But I also and the seven churches there in Asia Minor. But at the same time, I also think it's extremely relevant for the end times picture, which we're sort of considering yeah. today. So um, let's talk about Revelation. So you've you yeah. already said that Jesus' second coming is mentioned yeah. 300 times in the New Testament. But probably you, yeah. we see it in its most vivid and its most detailed uh in in revelation so do you yeah. want to say a little bit about what that book is and yeah. what you think its purpose is and maybe the story uh that it's is telling us yeah well the book of revelation is not straightforward as people can say because of course it's apocalyptic language it's a bit like ezekiel chapter one and daniel seven and other places like that. It's just this is weird language which is of a different caliber to what we normally understand so i mean regular prophecy is in a sense quite straightforward, but this is prophetic apocalyptic stuff. So it's it's all a bit of a brain bender, really. But to sum it up, I think the revelation is, in a way, quite simple as an overview. And I'll try to remember this. This is all unscripted, everybody. So, <laughs> so you've got the introduction, of course. You've got the seven churches in Revelation, uh, Laodicea and others like that, you know, uh, and so on and so on, Philadelphia got those churches and a specific message was written was told to them from jesus to john to sort of encourage them or rebuke them or whatever and there's loads of stuff i might in the summer do a, a, a some teaching on the seven churches revelation the church but there's loads of stuff in there whether whatever you believe there's there's such what i call if you're like existential truth it's there for everybody of any generation so you've got the intro, the seven churches, then suddenly you find yourself in heaven. Then you've got all these glorious words and angels saying this and everything else. And then you move from that into the, the, the six, uh, the seven seals. And you've got um, these are all kind of they're linked in with the uh, apocalypse, the four horsemen of the apocalypse and all that. You know, first four seals, are the first four horsemen. But you've got all this disaster going on all across the world. And that's the interesting thing all across the world it's just not local only to jerusalem and the surrounding area it's just planetary and on it goes and then eventually you end up with the the six trumpets then you get the six bowls and it's all this doom and gloom interlaced with these wonderful words of of, of worship and praise and seeing who god really is etc etc and then you finally move all the way through that and and that that's that's i mean it's it's not always easy to read that but that is the picture so you can see it as you read it even if you don't quite understand all the strange things like three frogs or whatever there might be in there you know what i mean so 
So, <laughs> you know, so you've got all that going on. But then eventually you reach a point where you get to Babylon in, in, in Revelation 17 and 18. And that's, and that's to do with obviously Babylon and what does that mean? That requires a bit of thinking. But then you've got Jesus coming back in 19. You've got the judgment coming. You've got the millennial reign of Christ for a thousand years. And then you move into the new heavens and new earth. And, and then the book's wrapped up. So that's the overall thing. It goes from extremely bad, encouraging the church. It goes from introduction, encouraging the church is extremely bad news, culminating in Babylon. And then you end up in the wonderful, wonderful truth that Jesus is coming back. You see, that's the thing. What's the message of Revelation? Jesus wins. That's that's what it comes to. And, and, and there's so much in there about praising God and, and giving glory to God. So th there's a lot in there. And, and as I said at the beginning, there's a lot of things in there that I think if a person with an objective mind looks at the scriptures, they can say, yeah, I can see that happening in the world now. I can see that it would might happen in the world eventually or something or other. Um, and just to say, really, um, I don't know if this is relevant now or not, but if you were to look at 2 Thessalonians 2, it talks about uh, the lawless one, the man of lawlessness, and that he wants to set himself up as God in the temple. Context of that is around the day of our Lord, which is what the previous verses say, lest anybody say it doesn't mean that. We also have antichrists mentioned in 1 John 2, and the antichrist is mentioned there. Mm. In Revelation, when we get to chapter 13, we've got the whole thing of the beast. There's actually two beasts. The first beast is like the political economic one, and the second beast, which is also called the false prophet. I know it gets a bit involved, but the false prophet is the, is the second beast mentioned in that passage. But basically, it is clear from there, Revelation 13, the first beast is again setting himself up in the temple. It's all there for people to read. If you go back to our Matthew 24 passage, there's this strange phrase called the abomination of desolation. What is that? That refers to when a previous man in 165 BC set himself up in the temple to be worshipped as God. And what Matthew's saying is it's going to happen again before Jesus comes back. Same stuff is in 2 Thessalonians 2, as I've just mentioned. It's also in Revelation 13. And we've also got 1 John 2 talking about Antichrist. So I think these are all images of the same end times figure, the Antichrist, the beast, the abomination that causes desolation, if you like, and, you know, the, the lawless one. And the same character through the different lenses of interpretation from those different writers. Mm -hmm. So for me, when you look at Revelation, we've got to see that in the central focus of this is this individual who wants world power with world deception through his cohort and various other things as well. So to me, this is incredibly relevant to society and you know, there's there's loads of people. Even the doomsday clock is saying we're one second to midnight at the moment. Or so. I mean, we are such a stressed world at the moment. But all I know is Jesus reigns. He is Lord. To use a Greek word, he's the Pantocrator, the almighty, all-ruling, all-mastering God over every single thing in the past, the present, and the future. And that's what we've got to keep hold of and be prepared as people. Yeah. So, so everything happened. It's a happy ending, I guess. Uh, Jesus yeah. comes again. Jesus is king, and it's yeah. not just a local. Like you said, it's not localized to Israel or wherever. It's it's a no. military thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. It comes back and it is the most glorious thing ever. We really should be smiling our heads off at the thought of the return of Jesus because it's 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 like nothing else. He's coming with his angels. He's coming with power. He's returning to Jerusalem. You know, he's going back to the place from where he ascended, Acts 1, verse 11. That's where he was returning. Um He's going to go back, and there's going to be an extraordinary moment when he re- when he raises and resurrects all those believers to be with him. So it's just it's just phenomenal stuff, yeah. really, really is. It, it, the, the, you've got the bad news, but don't, we've got to remember that there's good news to come. Absolute best news ever. So I'm just trying to think. Probably the first time I came across this sort of stuff, I probably would have been in my early teens. Left Behind series, yeah, which yeah. became incredibly popular uh, in the states, which picks up on on the the story of revelation which is very much a chronological series of events and yeah. it translates those into i guess which would have been in those times 1980s 1970s 80s america yeah. um and really kind of it was it was popular because people could see it couldn't they they could, yeah, they could yeah. take this book which was very um strange with characters we don't understand and it turned it into something that was modern and yeah applicable mm. how do how do you see the do you do something similar do you think oh well, you can't really do that to revelation how do you interpret revelation for today yeah well you know i have met a minister who says how can you be that specific simon and i thought well i'm not that specific because i didn't say for example like haley did in his bible commentary back in the wherever it was he wrote it that the bombs falling out of the, the the bombs falling out of the planes in the Second World War were the giant hailstones of Revelation Nine. I don't do that kind of thing at all to script. Mm. I just think that's an awful thing to do. I think we will know when we get there what these things really do mean. I think I think that's the case. Mm. I think with Tim LaHaye and the Left Behind series, you know, and so forth, and there's a film about that as well. I'm trying. I suppose, in a, in a sense, there's, there's that element with that as, as well, I suppose. But I'm trying very hard to take the broad strokes, if you like, but at the same time, I can't avoid certain specificities, specificities if you see what I mean. Yeah, I can't. There are things in there like the Antichrist that I just have to clearly teach on. So, you know, that that's that. But I wouldn't be saying, like, you know, the pale horse with death and famine. Well, I can see there's death and famine in the world now, and I can I can see that people can talk about that. Then I think that will that will become worse, and we will know that that's what that is fulfilled. But I think the important thing is whatever we're doing with the Book of Revelation and any book is to take it in its proper context. It's very easy to take a book out of context or take a this out of context. Mm. I think that's not a good way. So if if in Revelation six it talks about um, Pale, the pale horse and death and destruction and all those kind of things. You've also got to take Revelation four in 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 with in with that, which shows the wonder and the glory of God. I think we have to hold these two concepts together, mm. otherwise we'll lose ourselves in this dreadful doom all the time, um, which is not always helpful. But some people like me, I've had to go through the death and the doom more than most, I suppose, because. Well, I have to write a book about it, but I'm not asking everybody to do that. I'm just saying it's important to remember Jesus Christ is the king. Yeah. He's the king. And that's what Revelation is also about. He, whatever else it goes on about, you can see as you read it, the glory, the wonder, the honour, the praise, the power that belongs to him. Mm. So I think that's an important 
element to try and keep in mind when, when we're interpreting it, you know. Because I guess we can get caught up in things like, I remember, I think when Visa came out, you know, credit yeah. cards and debit cards, <laughs> it was like, that's part of revelation. And, and yeah. Um, and, and there's, I remember someone commenting about the shape of the, uh, it's some building, I think the UN headquarters or something is, and it's very easy to look into things we see in our world and, and look at revelation and link them. Yeah. Are you saying that it will be obvious, but let's not get lost in all that. Let's just focus on the news of Jesus Christ coming again and putting things right. And there is. Yeah. It's a bit like when the European union had, 10 nations joined to it everybody's heart started going oh look there's 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 10 kings mentioned in revelation 17 and babylon and all that oh it's got to be a fulfillment now we've got 20 something they're not not quite there really um you've got to be careful how far how far you push certain things Mm. but what i could say when we talk about visa and marks and other things yes there are if you like forerunners in the world to what that might eventually be yeah um like there are things like microchips under people's skin and using them in in clubs in barcelona like being in your go and that sort of thing so there is technology being developed that you know is pointing towards that sort of thing but may i say and i think this is an important thing to say um when i when you look at the mark of the beast you know the mark of the beast is not going to be issued until the beast is on the earth. Hmm. It's as simple as that. So as he's not here yet, there is no mark of the beast yet. We don't even know what that is. The Greek word would imply something etched on the right, or a bit right, on the right arm or on the head, rather than subcutaneous under the skin. But what I would say is that when he comes and he asks for this to be issued, it's not just about buying and selling. It's about allegiance and worship of the beast, as other passages make clear about that in the mm. scriptures. So, so therefore, um, I think Revelation 16, 20 rings the bell. Those who receive the beat, the, the mark, worship the, the beast, if you see what I mean. So there's something about this mark. It's more than just goods and purchases. It's yeah. about you are loving this antichrist figure. That's why some people get their heads chopped off, because they won't do it. And other people you know, get killed or whatever else in another means. So I think that's really important to mention. Now, how how that works with modern technology, it could be that technology enables globally for something like that to be done, but what the mark is and how it links in directly to that, if it does at all, I don't definitely know. So I'm, I'm more, that's what I'm saying. I'm more careful. Yeah. I'm not going to suddenly say, oh, someone's got a six written on their hand in their big pen. Oh, no, that's it kind of thing. You know what I mean? You've got to, got to be sensible with these things and not run away with things, as people were with the pandemic recently. So, you know. <laughs> yes. I guess depending on who we are and where we are in time, it's very easy to interpret those end times. You yeah. know, if, you're, if you're a Christian in North Korea now, it's very yeah. easy to see that in where you're at. If you were a, a Christian in the Second World War, maybe in Nazi Germany, it's very easy to see absolute times in that, yeah. and and so on and so forth, all throughout the last two thousand years. Yeah. Um, but it's all pointing towards and setting ourselves up for something that will happen in the future. Yeah, I think it's um, a prolepsis, really. To use, I suppose I said it earlier on, dress rehearsal. I think. Mm. I think the Caesars, the Genghis Khans, the Adolf Hitlers, the stuff that goes on in North Korea, all these places are, in a way, a seeing what 
the end will kind of look like. Yeah. Because Hitler was an antichrist, mm. and people would say he was he was the one at the time. Of course, you can blame him because I mean he was head case, you know, doing all these things to people. But I think he's an antichrist, and he kind of is look. There's something about that sort of stuff. All, all in in Babylon, even in history past, in the in the Old Testament, the kind of things, all these things, kind of are pointing towards a final thing. And we we will know when we get there. I really do that. I think we've got to be specific where we can be, general where we can be, and at the same time, sometimes be a bit bolder with that if we feel there's reason to. But also careful not to be. Seem to be one of those people on the street corners holding a board up saying the, the end is nigh because I think the end is nigh, but I don't know quite when it would be. So, you know, <laughs> and there's a big gap with all of that, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. So, you know, so I think kind of drawing our conversation to a close, and thank you so much for, for all that you, you've said. I'm just I'm trying to think, okay, for the average person in the church, average follower of Jesus, um, how should they respond? to to revelation um should they read it should they ignore it how should they apply it to their life how should they be you know worrying about these things how can we yeah how should how should we be going from here yeah um i think yes a person should read it i think a person should read every scripture in the bible it's always got something to say i think the question that anybody should be asking of themselves as i would say with people who use everyday jesus notes you know when they've read something in there what does this mean for me today? So if you read Revelation 1 and it says in there something on the lines of Jesus has purged us from all our sins, for example, in chapter 1, what does that mean for me right now? Because I think that's just a profound thing, all our sins. What does it mean to say is the Alpha and Omega? You know, what does that mean to my life? Because that's in Revelation. When you look at the Revelation 6 stuff with the, with the seals and all the horsemen and whatever else and the doom and the gloom, you can say, okay, well, this is hard going. I don't really like this very much. But what is Revelation also telling you about this time? It's What it is telling us is God is in control in spite of how terribly graphic it's going to be. And Lord knows, I don't know why it has to be the way it describes it to be. I honestly don't. My heart breaks at what God will finally allow for the human race. But I think we need to then be saying, well, what, what does this mean to me? What is this about for my modern day life? And there might be some things you just don't have an answer for. Sometimes you're reading stuff and it's just information. Yeah. But I think some people do a journal, don't they? They write down different things. And I think that might be a good idea to jot a few things that come into your mind when you're praying and reading something. Mm. But I do think the church, looking at Revelation, looking at Matthew 24, whatever it is that they're doing, um, you know, I don't know. I, I just think they they need to keep themselves in in awe at the glory of who God is. I think worship is one of the primary things. There's many, many days I get up where I'm feeling pretty worn out or fed up about something or other. Yeah. And it's hard being a minister. It's hard being me, quite honestly. But anyway, that's another story. But I have to start with praying Bible truth. I have to start with praising God for who he is. So whenever people start to read any of these things, start with praising God. Try and find a way, not necessarily emotionally because you might not have that, but it might be a good thing because if I start with truth, 
then it kind of brings me up to where I need to be for whatever. And I think that's an important element of any of these books. So, you know, I always, I always pray the word. So, for example, at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, just a few chapters after this end time stuff, it says, Lo, I will be with you until the end of the age. What a wonderful thing. When you're standing at the bus stop, when you're at church, when you're going through the worst thing imaginable in your life, I pray, Lord Jesus, thank you. You said to me, you will be with me till the end of the age. And it's it's just, I think, looking at it like that. And if there's stuff in Revelation you can't deal with, well, move on to the worship passages. Move on to the passages where Jesus is coming back. Because what I do want the church to do is get so enthused at the idea of their Christ is returning. This isn't some figment of our imagination. As I said at the beginning, it's the most prophesied thing. The church should be celebrating that, and we should be declaring, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, because it's it's the most incredible thing. I mean, when he comes, it's all going to be it's going to be all right. Yeah. It's all going to be all right when he comes back. So that's 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 worth praying and thinking about. That's what we've got to do, even if we don't understand all the whatevers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now that's great. Thank you so much, Simon. Now you've written a book about this. Do you want to? Tell us what it's called. Yeah, you... yeah, I'm relu- reluctantly. I've got it here because I was asked to put it there. So yeah, that's, that's what it is. So it's World Empire and, and the, return. the Return of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And by it can Simon be got, Downing. Yeah, and it can be got through Amazon and stuff. Um, I won't deny it's a fairly involved bit of thinking because I've obviously gone into certain depths, but you'll find many of the things that I've said today yeah. you know chatted through in, in in that in that book but um it's been it's been out a while so yeah yeah and <laughs> if they if someone wanted to get hold of you where can they find you well i i think will they more likely have your email address than mine yeah well, yeah they can contact us through through the uh and then you the, can forward it phrase, but, forward it to me yeah, that so, way so yeah so if you want to contact simon i can forward uh uh, a message onto him if they've got any particular questions yeah. i mean i could i mean a lot of people talk about the rapture i mean i could talk about the rapture for a bit but i don't know if anybody really wants me to or not um, <laughs> okay, go on. Then. quickly what is the rapture the rapture um is basically when jesus christ comes back um in that moment when he returns the dead in Christ are first resurrected and raised the people who are on the earth at that time his believers they are also raised at that moment, and then they are raptured. Rapture is a Latin word, which shouldn't really be the one we use. It means to caught, it means to be snatched up or caught up forcefully into the air, and then we go to be with Jesus in Jerusalem, which is the first place he comes back to. Okay, so that's the rapture. And the big question about the rapture is, does it happen before the big tribulation happens on the earth, which is the time of the Antichrist I talked about earlier on? Yeah. Does it happen before? in the middle of that or after i'm going to be an extremely unpopular person by saying i believe the rapture does not happen until the end of all the troubles i am a post tribulation uh, i'd much uh, rather be taken up into the air before well that. yeah so would i martin really but I, yeah. I, I i'm afraid i don't think it's gonna <laughs> so i'm guessing i mean the left behind series i'm guessing would take it that all the christians get taken up yeah, absolutely at the yeah. beginning and everyone else is left behind to yeah. face 
yeah that's uh, everything. Right. and you have these amazing stuff where the pilot disappears out of a oh yeah that, all, all that sort of stuff well that might that might possibly happen but um it'll be after the tribulation so i mean you know that's what i think and i know that's not a popular view but may i say so, yeah <laughs> may i say it was the established teaching of the church for the first 400 years the idea of being raptured before didn't even come into existence till 1830 mm. um you know thousands of years of church reflection no one thought it up until 1830 there's reasons for that which we haven't got time for okay but i just think it's probably important for all of us whatever position we take on this um we just need to make sure we're ready for anything prepared for anything rather than thinking we're just going to escape from it all cory ten boom uh, was you know every heard of cory ten boom well in china there were loads of christians being persecuted and they were being taught don't worry jesus will come back and take you off the earth before the big 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 persecution comes what happens they weren't they went through absolute torment and this man said to cory Tenboom, prepare people for persecution prepare them for persecution and i don't mean that to end on a sad or negative note for us but i do think we can't just live on a bit of theology we've got and, and think oh it's going to be all okay kind of thing i haven't got anything to worry about my friends jesus told us we don't know the daddy hour but we've got to be ready really really ready for him and when he comes, it will be great. Right. That's excellent. Thank you so much, Simon. I really appreciate uh, your time and That's your right. wisdom and insight. And uh, yeah, okay. thank you. That's all right. No problem. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in, if you did. And thank you, Martin, for hosting it. Yeah. Pleasure. See ya. So what did you think? Which interpretation resonates with you the most? Has Christ returned in the form of the church? Or do we find hope in the knowledge that Jesus will return at some unknown future hour to put the world right? Why not pop your ideas and your thoughts in the chat below? Either way, I hope that these interviews have got you a bit more interested in the end times, and in particular the book of Revelation. On that note, I thought I would give you four tips on how best to read the book of Revelation. One, remember it is part of our Bible. Do Christians believe that the Bible or Holy Scripture is God-breathed with its contents being inspired by God and it's perfect for teaching and correcting and training and guiding us in life? And although the book of Revelation, well, it's a bit tricky to understand, it is still contained within the pages of the Bible. Therefore, it too is God-breathed. And it too is hugely useful for guiding us through life. But also it is part of the overarching story of the Bible. It isn't a random book stuck on the end. It refers to the Old Testament. It picks up on the teaching of Jesus in Paul. And it is a continuation of the story of how God has intervened in our world to rescue us from sin through Jesus. Two, read it. For many years I've stayed away from the book of Revelation because, well, what I've read of it was pretty wacky. Or if I did read it, I stuck with the understandable bit at the beginning where Jesus talks about the seven churches. But then last month, I decided to read it. I mean, it's not that long, it's only 22 chapters, so it didn't take that long. 
Now I used a reading plan from the Bible app, which lasted a month and just gave me a bit of reflection and explanation of each chapter. But there are loads of other reading plans that are shorter or longer. Yes, there will be bits that are a bit weird and plenty that you won't understand. But by reading through the whole book, you're given a much better understanding of the story. So go on and pick up your Bible and give it a read. Three, who is it written to? Well, the book of Revelation is a letter written 2,000 years ago by John to the seven churches in Asia. It was written to a particular group of people living in a particular time with their own particular troubles and pressures in life. There were social pressures, political issues, persecution, wars and tyrants. And this is just like any other letter in the New Testament. It's written to help those Christians better follow Jesus. And it speaks into their situation to give them hope and guidance. So when we try and interpret what these words mean, first and foremost, we need to consider how the original readers would have understood it. See, we're doing the text a disservice if we try and read too much of our modern context into it. However, just like the rest of the Bible, which is a very old book, it has the amazing ability to speak into our lives today in the 21st century. It's alive and God speaks to us through this ancient text. See, Revelation has that same quality about it. It is relevant, it is real, and it is useful for our lives now. Four, it's designed to impact us today. It's very easy to become despondent and depressed when we look at the state of the world around us. Life is pretty messed up and we feel pretty helpless to do anything about it. The book of Revelation, the whole Bible, gives us the hope that God is in charge, that God has a plan and God will sort out this mess. And this book is there to inspire and energize us so we are better able to endure and persevere when the going gets tough. It should help all Christians, all followers of Jesus to be faithful witnesses to the reality that Jesus has won the victory over sin and death. It tells us that this is not the end and our suffering is not in vain. That regardless of how badly the world is doing and how rubbish the church can sometimes be, everything will be all right in the end. So there you have it. Four tips for reading the book of Revelation. But let's not sugarcoat it. This is a tough subject and we can't be 100% sure about any of it. But I would ask you to give the book of Revelation a try and see how God can speak to you through it. I think you'll find that it's worth a go. Hey, thank you so much for watching. I hope you enjoyed this video. If you did, then please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Do like our video and do please share on social media. You can find us, Holy Baptist Church, on Facebook or Instagram. Just search Holy Baptist. And if you have any questions or would like more information, then do contact us at gotquestions.holybaptist.org.uk. Thank you for watching.